and welcome to the 38th episode of Till Death Do Us Part. I'm Daniel. And I'm Melissa. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. We sound a little groggy. It's because we just woke up and it's really early in the morning for us. Super early. Yep. This is Daniel's busy, busy time of the season. Yeah, I get a bit of work soon. <laughs> yeah, so we have to find little snippets to do this, but it's okay because we get to hang out with each other. That's it. Nothing like getting up early in the morning, drinking coffee, and doing a podcast. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Hmm. All right. Well, let's start this off with a shout out to one of our 11 listeners. Yes. All right. This one's titled, Better Than Dateline. Ooh. Ooh. That's a compliment. What could be better than Dateline? I don't know. And this is from, I believe it says Just Carrie. I think that's what it is. Cool. Carrie says, true crime is so fascinating, but the amount of detail that Melissa digs up on these cases is phenomenal. The dynamic between Daniel and Melissa is visible through their podcast. When I listen, I often talk back only to be disappointed when there's no response. <laughs> Eventually, Daniel asks questions that I, too, am left wondering, and Melissa always comes through with the facts. Great job, you guys. Keep it up. Thank you very much. Wow. Thank you so much. We really, really appreciate it. And uh, better than Dateline? Huh. Wow. I don't think that's true, but, you know, we'll get there. We're trying. Maybe better than Snapped. Sure. Or that stupid, ridiculous show called Till Death Do Us Part. Not our show. It's a TV show, yes, that is so filled with with misinformation, it's ridiculous. Okay, don't listen to them, listen to us. (laughs) Exactly. All right, baby, got some factoids for me? I do. Have you ever witnessed me driving and trying to find something and I turn down the radio and then you kind (laughs) of laugh at me? (laughs) Yes, many times. So there's this whole phenomenon of men versus women and multitasking, like, right? Like men versus women? Not men versus women, but that women are better at multitasking than men. Oh, 100%. And, yes. Yeah, so you think that women can handle multiple tasks at once better than men? Yeah. Right? I mean, we've been trained over the years. So, yeah. So I was reading and they've done a bunch of different studies And there actually is a study out there where they did with a treadmill, and this was in Switzerland. It's called a Stroop test. Like a a treadmill? Like one of the things you run on? Yeah, they put put men and women on a treadmill. Okay. And they found that men and women over 60, well, okay, they would do give them a series of verbal tests to do while they were walking on a treadmill. Oh. And as they gave them these verbal tests, they would stop moving their right arm. So when you're swinging your arms, just walking normally, right. they would unconsciously stop swinging just their right arm and continue walking while they're doing the test. And they found it's because the left side of the brain is controlling like language and right arm movements. And so it wow. gets overwhelmed and your body just stops doing one of the things. And that uh, basically the same thing happens when you're driving and you're trying to find something. Mm. the the sound coming into your brain overwhelms it and then it consciously tells your 
hand to turn to get rid of it to change the environment so that it can handle all this incoming data. Do you think it's the right hand because that's what you use to turn down the radio? I think that's a coincidence. I think it is too because they probably drive on the other side of the road. Probably. Yeah, that doesn't that European doesn't, it's countries. not the hand, it's just the Or they drive on yeah, they like the driver's seat is on the other side of right. the car. Yeah, it was it was fascinating because it makes sense. You know why the women's stopped moving back and forth when they were walking? Why? Because they had to use it to um, talk with their hands. Oh, is that it? Yeah, because we were being asked questions because most of the time we talk with our hands. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I envision. Anyways. That's probably true. Mm-hmm. So they found that men needed to mobilize additional areas of their brain and use more energy than women when switching attention between tasks. And women yes. typically find it easier than men to switch attention and their brains do not need to mobilize extra resources in yeah. comparison to male brains. Yeah. That so, sounds absolutely true. Yeah. It was like, oh, okay. So yeah, it's, it makes and sense. There is actually no such thing as multitasking. It's that your brain stops one task and starts the other, but it switches between the two in nanoseconds. Wow. And so really we just have lots of things separate projects and that we just stop one and start the other but it seems like you're doing them all at the same time yeah but at some point your brain will not do one thing as well so it starts to suffer so it's like if you take on multiple projects Mm -hmm. you have multiple projects not done as well as opposed to one or two done really well so all those half done projects at people's homes correct they've just taken on too many tasks because your brain can't sit there and focus on all of them at once. It's impossible. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. That's it's like when you drive. <laughs> when you drive and we're just talking and then he goes, babe, we can't talk because I'm trying to find <laughs> this address. Oh my gosh. If we're driving <laughs> and you're talking to me, I'll subconsciously react to driving conditions and all yeah. that stuff, but I will pass the exit. Oh yeah. And I'm like, Daniel, weren't we supposed to? Turn so if right I say there? where are we going, I tell everyone to be quiet and yep. I turn the radio down. He does because otherwise I'll miss it because I just can't concentrate. It overwhelms me. It's like such a dad thing to do. It is. Everyone, be quiet. Quiet. I'm trying to find the street. <laughs> anyway, I thought that was really cool. It's. I know it's not very interesting. I find that very interesting. Yeah, and it explains a lot, darling. It does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you're slightly better at that than I am, <laughs> according to the the treadmill study. Well, but otherwise, they said it really there really isn't a difference. You're just a little bit better at switching between tasks. I think I'm a lot better at switching between tasks. Oh, okay. <laughs> In our relationship, probably. Yeah. Well, that was great. All right. Thanks, quick. honey. All right. All right, Daniel. Yes. <laughs> Are you ready for my case? <laughs> I am. <laughs> All right. I'm going to give everybody a little bit of a warning. Oh. This is going to be a two-parter. And the reason this is going to be a two-parter is because there is so much misinformation about this case that I got to get it straight. I got to tell you the straight story. That's it. 
And I am very passionate about this case because it takes place in my hometown. Oh. And it took place during the formative years of my life. Really? And this is actually the case that got me into true crime. So this shaped who you are today. It really did. As sad as that sounds. As an amateur sleuth. As an armchair investigator. Wow. This is the case that gave me that intrigue. I am on the edge of my seat. Are you? All right. This is the case of Daniel and Elizabeth Ann Broderick. Do you know this case? Darling? So that's the, well, obviously, because you already said it's from your hometown. So this is the the lawyer dude. Yes. In, in the San Diego. Yes. I think we watched like a sort of kind of um, drama movie documentary. We've watched a lot of things about this. A, right. Yes. Because this takes place in San Diego, which is my hometown. Beautiful San Diego. Nothing can go wrong in San Diego. No. So San Diego, it's like from Ron Burgundy. Right? Right. It is a whale's vagina. Yeah. San That's Diego. what the word means. <laughs> San Diego means a whale's vagina. Yeah. It doesn't, by no. the way. San Diego Saint, is named after St. Diego. St. Diego. Yes. I'm mm-hmm. just guessing. No, it is. Okay. I mean, my grandma was an archaeologist. I should know these things. Right. All right. Before I dive into the dumpster fire that is this case, I want to preface this with, with Like most of you, I have seen the miniseries that is on Netflix. If you've been living under a rock and missed it, it's season two of a show called Dirty John. I, like most of you, were highly entertained, but that was also the Hollywood version of this story. Events that happened were pushed together with other events. Some characters were made up, while some were never put in. One of my main sources of information was the book that the miniseries is actually based on, but some situations are very different in the miniseries than they are in the book. Just keep that in mind as I tell you the incredible story of two people who should never have gotten married. Nice. Right. (laughs) So I've been studying this case since I was 11 years old. Just FYI. Really? (laughs) Yes. What? This, you are kind of a nerd. I am. This is was a very formative case for me, and I also have three degrees of separation to this couple. I was trying to make my bicycle work at (laughs) eleven, and you were worried about a murder case. I was because it was the talk of the town for years. Wow! In the early morning hours of November fifth, nineteen eighty nine, in beautiful La Jolla, California located in San Diego County. And this is pronounced La Jolla. This is not La Jolla. No. <laughs> La Jolla. <laughs> this is La Jolla. Okay. Holla ha- from La Jolla. <laughs> I just, I don't want to make fun of anybody that has mis- mispronounced this, but, but it, this it's is pretty a passive, funny. It is a passive aggressive it's, way of getting to yes, make fun of people. It's can't. La Jolla. Come on, look it up, people. (laughs) Are you serious? Oh, stop. Diane Black was woken from her slumber by the incessant ringing of her landline phone. Realizing the phone was going to keep ringing unless it was answered, Diane's husband picked up the receiver and groggily said, Hello? A few moments later, he had shoved the receiver at Diane and said, It's Betty. She's upset about something. Now what? thought Diane. Yes, Betty, she said. 
I need help, she said in a somber tone. Diane then heard a retching sound coming from the receiver. You know what I mean when I say retching? Yeah, like she sounds like she's throwing up. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Sorry. Betty then told Diane that she had been to Dan's house and she'd fired shots. But she didn't know if she'd actually hit anybody. Oh, boy. Diane tried to concentrate on what she was hearing. Was her friend Betty serious or was she finally succumbing to that mental breakdown everyone was waiting for? Where are you? Diane asked Betty. Betty told Diane she was at a phone booth in Claremont, but was too disoriented to tell her what street she was on. She did finally tell her that there was a Coco's across the street from where she was standing. That's important. I know exactly where this is, too. It's you crazy. You know where the Coco's is? I do. Mm-hmm. It's not there anymore, though. Oh, okay. <laughs> Stay there, Betty. I'm coming to get you, Diane told her. Diane then hung up the phone and called Betty's home number. Betty's 13-year-old son answered the phone. Diane asked him if he could go wake up his mother, Betty's boyfriend, Brad Wright. More on Brad later. Okay. Mm-hmm. And yes, yes, ladies and gentlemen, Betty had a boyfriend. What? Yes. That was something that was conveniently left out of the miniseries, by the um, way. Mm-hmm. Okay. Diane informed Brad of her conversation with Betty and then left her home to find the phone booth where Betty was told to stay, which would have been about a 20-minute drive from La Jolla to Claremont. But when Diane finally located the phone booth, Betty was gone. Diane then drove back to La Jolla and waited at her home for another phone call. But it never came. Nor did Diane think to call the San Diego Police that's, Department. Was, that's what I was going to ask. <laughs> yes. Why wouldn't you call the police? I, I don't know. Diane. I don't know. Why didn't you call the police? But think about that, though. If your friend called you. Yes. And woke you up. Yes. Would you do that? I don't know. Would you? Or would you start to like overanalyze it and go, you know what? Maybe I just need to come get you or because well, you kind of want right. to evaluate the situation before you call the cops. And being Betty's friend, you know how dramatic right. Betty is. Right. So I probably would have done what Diane did actually when I think about it and just thought, oh, God, she's lost it. Like yeah. she's finally lost it. And I'm going to go pick up my friend, and I'm going to take her to a facility where she can get the help that she needs. This is back in the day when everyone actually answered their phones. Yeah. Because now you just wouldn't answer it. No. Well, like, now so pe most doing? people don't have landline phones now. That's true. Except for us. <laughs> yeah. Because we're old. Yeah. While Diane was on her way to Claremont, Brad had walked down to Betty's neighbor's and friend's house, Brian and Gail Forbes. They were early risers. Brad told the couple what Diane had told Brad over the phone. Gail then called the San Diego PD. But the three adults had no idea where to send the police. None of them knew the address of where Betty had said she'd fired shots. But Brian did know how to get there. Oh. He and Gail had been to a wedding on the property only seven months before. Brad and Brian hopped into Brad's new red Porsche and headed to the old and affluent area of San Diego known as Marston Hills, which overlooks Balboa Park. Nice. The beautiful Balboa Park. Mm -hmm. And it actually butts up to Hillcrest, where I worked when I was young as an assistant to a master stylist. 
And I can tell you that many a nights we have driven by this house. Wow. Mm-hmm. When I was like 19, 20. Next time we're down there, you need to, we need to go on a drive. I do. We can relive the high points of this case. Yes. And I distinctly and remember. Points. Yeah. And I distinctly remember on the 10 year anniversary of this case, driving by this house. We were not the only ones, actually, that was like bumper to bumper driving past oh my gosh. this house. I know it's crazy. It's very morbid. You'd want to go like trick or treating there during like totally. Halloween, so totally. you had an excuse to walk by it. Totally, and this would be that neighborhood that gave out the full size candy bars. Oh, nice! Those are mm-hmm. the best. Probably two full size candy bars. Wow. Brad pulled into the circular driveway of the antebellum style mansion. When you say antebellum, that means like very southern plantation that, looking yeah. with the big columns and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. With well-established eucalyptus and cypress trees scattered around the acre property, Brian ran up to the porch and began frantically banging on the front door and calling out the owner's names. Not hearing any noise from inside, he and Brad went around to the back and began checking for open windows and doors. Brian found an unlocked window to the laundry room. He had Brad hoist him through. When both men were inside the home, they began calling once again for the owners making sure to announce their presence, but still no answer. Brian knew the layout of the home well and told Brad that they needed to go upstairs to the master bedroom. Both men hurried up the stairs and saw what happened to be a phone thrown into the corner of the landing. Brian was the first to enter the master suite and came upon a scene he would never forget. He saw 44-year-old Dan Broderick and his lovely new wife, 28-year-old Linda Broderick, lying motionless. Uh-oh. Dan laying on his back on the ground next to his side of the bed, partly under the bed with his lower half wrapped in the bed covers. Dan had what appeared to be frothy cookies and cream ice cream coming out of his mouth mixed with blood. Uh-oh. Brian knew he was dead. He then noticed Linda sprawled across the bed on her stomach as if she had been reaching for her new husband. Her bloody hair was covering her face. Linda was also dead. Brian and Brad looked at each other and immediately knew who had killed Dan and Linda. Dan's ex-wife, Elizabeth Ann Broderick, otherwise known as Betty frickin' Broderick. Dang. (laughs) Dun, dun, dun. See, that's why you call the cops, so that they can find all that, so you don't have to. Right, but they didn't know the address. Yeah, they didn't know where to send Mm -hmm. them. Police arrived soon after the bodies were found and an APB was put out on Betty. She was considered armed and dangerous. Dan and Linda were pronounced dead at the scene. uh, Dan had sustained one gunshot to his chest. Linda had been shot once in her chest and once in her head. She had died instantly, but Dan had not. Uh Uh-oh. To the medical examiner on scene, it appeared that Dan had been struggling to breathe and had asphyxiated which explains the frothy substance coming out of his mouth. Oh, okay. Not ice cream. No, it was not ice cream. Dan could have been alive for up to half an hour and might have lived had help arrived sooner. Really? Yep. Investigators also noticed the phone in a hallway corner. It appeared to have been thrown there, cord and all, but it looked as though the cord had been ripped in half. Okay, so a lot of people think that she ripped it out of the... Right. Out of the wall. Yeah. She actually physically ripped this cord in half. 
So that he couldn't use it. So that eventually people think that she did that so that he couldn't reach the phone. Gotcha. Or he couldn't call out for help. But can you physically rip a phone cord in half? Really? Yeah. That doesn't take superhuman mom strength? No. Oh, okay. It just takes a crazy ex-wife strength. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What a sad and tragic ending for the newlywed couple. But their deaths will always ask the question, did they deserve what happened to them? Yes. Oh, oh I don't know. <laughs> the answer is always no, so I wanted to be different. Right. Daniel Broderick III met Linda Kulkenna when she was 21 and he was 38. Linda had just gotten a job as a receptionist in the building where Dan's law firm had their office. Linda was tall, thin, and extremely attractive. Every man's fantasy... In early 1982, at an office party, Dan's wife at the time, Betty, who he had been married to for 13 years, overheard Dan say to another lawyer, isn't she beautiful? By 1983, Dan had hired Linda as his personal assistant. Of course he had. And soon enough, Linda had risen the ranks to Dan's legal assistant and paralegal. Dan was paying her $30,000 a year, which is about $80,000 in today's economy, and her very own office overlooking the San Diego skyline. Oh, shoot. I would have been his assistant for that. (laughs) All without any sort of formal education. Wow. She, according to coworkers, she couldn't even type. But Linda, why, Why would you need to? But Linda was a smart girl and caught on rather quickly. She actually became a really great paralegal and legal assistant without any training that's like a two to four year program yeah and she didn't have any of that but she actually was really good at her job oh okay well then she was worth it yeah she wasn't just a piece of ass she was actually really smart i think people can can spell (laughs) i know i didn't want to say it out loud though know what that means (laughs) just in case people are listening with kids in the car you know you never know okay (laughs) You know what else Linda started doing? What? Banging Dan behind his wife's back. No. Are you serious? <laughs> Are you so surprised? Why would, he, why would he want to do that? Oh, gosh. Because she was a great paralegal. Clearly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's get into Betty and Dan's relationship because this is really what people want to hear. Okay. You sickos. Heck, yeah. <laughs> I want to hear about it. Daniel T. Broderick III. Wow. And Elizabeth Ann Biscaglia met in the fall of 1965 in Indiana during a football weekend between rivals Notre Dame and USC. Betty was in her freshman year at the prestigious all-girls Catholic school called the College of Mount St. Vincent, located in the Bronx. Oh, okay. The 17-year-old Betty had gotten permission from her very strict Catholic parents to attend the football game and festivities as long as she and her college friends were chaperoned the entire weekend. They were chaperoned by one of the girl's aunts. Okay, perfect. (laughs) Yeah. Betty and her friends had been invited to a college party after the game. A young and geekily handsome young man had approached the beautiful blonde Betty and asked for a pin. The young man introduced himself by writing his full name on a piece of paper and sliding it to her. It read... Daniel T. Broderick III, MDA. The A was in parentheses. Betty asked him what the A in parentheses meant, and he said, 
almost. Oh, my gosh. I, I just threw up in my mouth a little bit. Wow, that's pretty <laughs> slick. Right? I like it. The 19-year-old Notre Dame student in his junior year then told Betty that he had just been accepted to Cornell Medical School located in New York. Betty says that to her, meeting Dan was not love at first sight, but that she was curious. Huh. All I right. like that. I was going to say, that's an interesting um, line he I, used. Yeah, or she used. Oh, wait, which line? Sliding her the just the piece of paper. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. I thought the line where she said that it wasn't love at first right. sight, well, but that she was curious. Yeah. That was a great way to put that. Yeah. Dan, on the other hand, told his friends that he had just met the girl he was going to marry. Oh, That's a lot of pressure. Yeah. They exchanged information and Dan pursued Betty for the rest of his time at Notre Dame, writing Betty letters and calling on the phone as much as he could. All right. Dan and Betty had very similar backgrounds. Both came from very religious homes with lots of siblings. Dan being the oldest of nine siblings and Betty being one of six. Wow. Dan grew up in a strict Irish Catholic household while Betty was raised in a devout Roman Catholic home. No pressure. Nope. Dan was raised hearing his father refer to his daughters as yucks, <laughs> which meant too low to kick and too wet to step on. What? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Sure. Where Betty was raised to be a good girl who would grow up with manners, marry as a virgin, take care of her husband in their home, and breed lots of Catholic babies. There you go. Mm-hmm. Fellow breeders. Yes. No contraception for you. Ooh, ooh. No, no, strictly forbidden. <laughs> fun fact. Ready oh, for a fun fact yes, already? Always. Both were born in November. Dan on November 22nd, 1944, and Betty on November 7th, 1947. Oh my gosh, that explains so much. Doesn't it? So they were three no. years apart. <laughs> when Dan moved to New York to attend medical school at Cornell, He and Betty officially began dating. Betty says that she was charmed by Dan's ambitiousness and that he was so self-assured. Dan, on the other hand, thought that Betty would make the perfect wife and mother. There you go. (laughs) It's meant to be. Yeah. Dan then began asking Betty to marry him every day for the next three years. Betty, (laughs) Betty refused Dan's proposals until after she had graduated, wanting to receive her teaching degree before getting married. Smart girl. Sure. That was very smart. Good job, Betty. Betty completed her college credits early and graduated in January of 1969 with a degree in early childhood education and a minor in English, just in time for their grand Catholic wedding. Yes. On April 12th, 1969, 24-year-old Dan and 21-year-old Betty were wed. Some people say that the day of the wedding was the day that the relationship between Betty and Dan started breaking down. Even though the wedding was a proper and formal affair, Dan refused to wear a rented tux, opting to wear one of his pinstripe suits and brown shoes. Okay. Yeah. Dan was quite the fashionista, by Sounds the way. Sounds like it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He really liked to look spot on. And a certain way. And a certain way. Yeah. He had an idea of what he wanted to look like. And he did it. All right. And part of that idea was he did not want to wear a tux. All right. According to Betty, her mother was completely embarrassed, and Betty never understood why he just wouldn't want to make her happy and wear a tuxedo. 
It's a good question. Betty had this to Who say. Who cares? Right. Betty had this to say about their young marriage. All either one of us knew was that we were exactly what the other was supposed to be looking for in a mate. On paper. On paper, they were perfect. Okay, perfect match. Dan and Betty vacationed in St. Thomas in the Caribbean at a private residence of family friends. Ooh, must be nice. Who has a private residence in St. Thomas? Mm, their family friends. Evidently their family friends. Yeah. Okay, all right. There's been lots of talk about the Broderick's wedding night. Both Dan and Betty were virgins. They waited oh, until boy. they were married, which is hard to do. Sure. In Betty's autobiography, she stated that Dan raped her on their wedding night. But she also has said that about her first sexual encounter with her boyfriend, Brad, which leaves me confused because rape is not a word that you throw around lightly. No kidding. What people seem to think or what people have gotten from Betty is that it wasn't actually what we consider rape. She just used that as a very dramatic word. Oh, so it was a soft rape. No, no. Oh. It was just Dan was excited. and So he, he's probably expecting she's all ready for it. And then right. when she wasn't, he's right. like, you're supposed to do this. Right. In her mind, she wanted to make love. Ah. Okay. But in his reaction was he was excited. Right. And forceful. It's a lot of pressure built up. Right. I don't know. Am I saying that right? I suppose Not so. forceful like rape, but just excited and. Yeah. He wanted it really bad. Yeah. So it just happened and she didn't. Maybe quicker than she thought it was going to happen. Maybe. I don't know. Like, Probably beat this to death. Probably. But anyways, it was not the rape that we think of. So he ripped her clothes off and was like, Let's do it. And she's like, whoa. Possibly. No. I mean, there's different she, versions yeah. of, or she's told different versions of it, but. Right. Okay. Well, he wasn't very talkative, <clears throat> you know, afterwards. So it's hard <laughs> no. to get a story out. No, he was not. Betty also says that Dan fired the maids and the chef at the honeymoon house. Since they were married now, she should be doing that stuff. Absolutely, she should. But, she needs to get in there. <laughs> on apron. their honeymoon? Yes. No. T topless with an apron on. Oh, boy. And do the dishes. Okay. But who knows if that's true or not? Yeah. This Sounds is... like she's just thrown. But then why, did, then why did she just say, you know what, this was a mistake? Well, this is all from her autobiography, yeah. which she is going to spin it to fit her narrative. Okay. And Betty's narrative is she I guess was it the depends, victim. Yeah. Depends on which side you're yes. already biased to. Yeah. Well, Betty's a professional victim, so. Yeah. Uh, she did marry him. <laughs> she did marry him. She chose him. And she was beautiful. Like, we can say, oh, you know, they're pretty. Yeah. No. She had natural beauty. Betty was beautiful. Yeah. She even modeled for a little bit. Oh. So huh. there you go. Dan was lucky. There you go. And she was taller than Dan. Hmm. Oh, really? Yeah, by an inch. She was taller. So that probably, he was always struggling with that. He was. I'm sure he put lifts in his shoes, I was though. just going to say that. He I wonder if he vain. wore like extra shoe, you know, yeah. taller shoes I bet he stuff. did. When the couple returned home from their honeymoon, Betty found out that she and Dan were expecting their first child. That quick? That quickly. Oh, man. She was fertile. Dang. Betty had been hired at a local private school as a third grade teacher, and Dan was still attending medical school in Cornell. At Cornell. 
Gotcha. On January 24th, 1970, the Brodericks welcomed their first child, a baby girl. Dan did not slow down on his studies nor his nightly social life. No, why would he? Betty had quit her teaching job to be a full-time wife and mother to Dan and the newborn. Dan, being a full-time student, worked odd jobs like driving a cab or being a teacher's assistant, while Betty took in babysitting jobs, sold Avon and Tupperware, and anything she could do to make money with a baby on her hip. I also want to say, I'm not going to say the kids' names. It's They're very easy to look up, but because these kids were minors when everything happened, I don't feel comfortable okay. stating their names because it's not about them. We could make up names. No, because if people are super interested in what these kids' names are, they can just go look them up really easily. Right. Mm-hmm. With graduation from medical school a few months away, Dan knew he had more years of internship, residency, and specialization left to accomplish. So he decided to change course and apply for law school instead. Why wouldn't you? Right. Dan told Betty that by having a medical degree and a law degree, he could specialize in medical malpractice law, which was just starting to take off. So he was going to become an ambulance chaser. (laughs) Yeah. Kind of. Dan knew that that was where the big money was. Yes, it is. Which he is absolutely correct. Now, Dan's parents were footing most of the bill for college and medical school, but refused to pay for Dan's law school tuition. You got to draw the line somewhere. Yeah. Especially tuition for Harvard Law, to which Dan had been accepted. Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. Dan moved Betty and their daughter to Boston. Dan began law school in the fall of 1970. Guess what else happened that fall? What? Betty was pregnant again. Again? Yeah. He raped her again? No, stop throwing that word. Sorry. <laughs> no, okay. that's not what she said about okay. the rest of their marriage. She wanted it was the just second. their wedding right, night. Right, no, it was move. just their wedding night gotcha. that she said that he did this to her. All right. Yes. The Broderick's second daughter was born in 1971. Betty now had two little girls to look after. She was still the main breadwinner, and she was helping Dan with his studies. Now, she was multitasking. She was very much multitasking. <laughs> Absolutely. She oh actually gosh. basically put Dan through law school. Right. But not only financially, she studied with him, wrote out his briefs, typed things for, for him, right. helped him study for tests. Like Because unlike his assistant, she could type. Exactly. Oh, mm-hmm. man. Yeah, so Betty was everything to Dan. Betty also became pregnant again. What? She gave birth to their first son early, and he passed away two days after he was born. They never even named him. When Betty had become pregnant, she was under so much stress that she didn't want to have this baby and had told Dan that she was going to have an abortion. Oh, my gosh. For a woman... She is... Getting close to the to the edge. She's just stressed. Yeah. I mean, she is so overwhelmed with her life right now. Yeah. For a woman of strict Catholic faith to throw around this idea was unheard of. But Dan promised to be home more, to help Betty out with the girls, and try to bring in some extra income if she kept the baby. But he ended up passing away, so Dan became even more distant. Wow. Yeah. He's kind of a piece of crap. Yeah, Dan's not a likable guy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. 
Dan graduated from Harvard Law in 1973. He moved Betty and their two daughters from Boston all the way to beautiful San Diego, California. Mm-hmm. Dan had been offered an associate's position at the prestigious law firm of Gray, Carey, Ames, and Fry. And Dan. And Broderick. Right. <laughs> no, <laughs> never. Dan was making $32,000 a year, which is equal to almost $188,000 today. Gotcha. Yeah. So this was immediately he was making great money. Right. Yeah, that's pretty good to start off with. Yeah, as an associate. Yeah. For sure. In 1975, after only two years in San Diego, the Brodericks went from renting a modest home in Claremont to buying a lovely track home in a subdivision on the south side of the hills in La Jolla. No, La Jolla. Nice. (laughs) In court records, the home is referred to as Coral Reef. So I'm going to refer to this house as Coral Reef. Okay. Since this property did not have a view of the ocean, it was located in an area called Baja La Jolla, which I have never heard that ever in my entire life. So it's there, but it's not. It's there, of. but it's not. All it's right. up in the hills. All right. Yeah. You get to like say- Like near the five. The, yeah, you get to say, I live in La Jolla, but you don't actually- Right. You live in Baja La Jolla. Right. Okay. Right. right. And both of my parents have never heard it okay. called this as well. But, you know, whatever. Well, then it's probably wrong. <laughs> the Brodericks were most definitely moving up in the world. Dan was now 31 and Betty was 28. Nice. They're still super young. Yeah. Let's talk about La Jolla because La Jolla does kind of take on a supporting character in the story. Okay. La Jolla is a beautiful and affluent seaside town that occupies seven miles of coastline along the Pacific Ocean. La Jolla is 12 miles north of downtown San Diego and 45 miles south of Orange County. The name La Jolla is said to mean the jewel in Spanish, but as any good San Diegan knows, that the way La Jolla is spelled does not mean anything. Oh, okay. If the town had been called La Joja, which is J-O-Y-A, yeah. well, now that means the jewel in Spanish. Oh, okay. But it sounds good, right? Sure. Because La Jolla is spelled J-O-L-L-A, which means nothing. Yeah. Right. Yeah, because even two L's is a yeah sound. Right. In Espanol. So actually it'd be la, haya. Yes. J-O-L-L-A. Yeah. So we're not even saying, so they're like mixing it. They're mixing of. the two words together. Like, like San Diego <laughs> is all Spanish. <laughs> right. It's not a mix. No. But then they say la, which is the. Right. It's, it's Spanish, but then J-O-L-L-A is not. Spanish. It's not. It's not pronounced anyway. Yeah. Sorry. We were, so it doesn't mean the jewel, but people like it way too much. We have, but it's just because it's funny. All right. It's funny to me that it's known as the jewel, but that's not at all how it's supposed to be spelled. Yeah. Like I grew up in a little town called El Cajon, and it means the box. Right. I mean, most places in San Diego, the names are of Spanish. Well, Hoya sounds better than it does. Hoja. Yeah, La Jolla. I live in La Jolla. (laughs) Okay. So 
I'm going to talk about me for a second, of course. I am born and bred in San Diego County, and I have spent many a summer's day lounging on the beaches of La Jolla Shores or Torrey Pines. Isn't that just a thing? Don't people just say that, but you didn't actually do that? You I really did. did. I went to La Jolla Shores in high school all the time. Okay. All My right. friend had Lucky. a little yellow Volkswagen bug, and we, we oh, went well, there. If you have a yellow yeah. Volkswagen bug, then, yeah. then you have nothing else to do, but lounge on the beach. <laughs> Downtown La Jolla is a very pretty town with lots of expensive shops, restaurants, and art galleries. Mm-hmm. Yes, we were very white trash hanging yeah. out in La Jolla for sure. You were those people that we came were those from the people. outskirts and came in. Yes, right, we were the ones that were pretended. very much looked down on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The average income of a resident in La Jolla today is around $150,000 a year, which I honestly thought would be more than that. Yeah. I thought it'd be close to more like a million. Yeah. But you know why? Why? Because it's all old money. And a lot of the people it's there have, in, have inherited those homes. Yeah, that's true. I mean, think about it. Like the houses weren't worth millions a long time ago. No. And we'll get into that. So too. the properties were just passed on and right. then you're in them, but you're not actually, it's not like you purchased them outright. Right. La Jolla is home to UCSD. Scripps Institution of Oceanography and Tori and Tory Pines Golf Course, to name a few. Mm-hmm. Okay. I remember one time being on a field trip in high school at Scripps Institution of Oceanography, and I got in trouble, and my mom had to come get me. <laughs> I had to call her at work Uh-oh. from the payphone oh, for from, her to come get me. Was it the same payphone? Oh, no. no. no Betty's payphone was in Claremont. Oh, okay. All right. Mm-hmm. No, say, this that is... would be weird. <laughs> yeah. I used yeah. that payphone. Yeah. Sorry, Mom. Sorry you had to come get me. Yeah. You're a horrible, horrible daughter. I was bad. Yeah. But what La Jolla is really home to is the elite and upper class. Nice. Especially back when the Broadricks moved there. Yep. That's where we're moving. Uh, nope. No. Dan rose the ranks very quickly at Gray, Carey, Ames, and Fry, but spent more and more time away from home, sometimes spending sunup to sundown at the office and, quote-unquote, networking in the evenings. Sure. Which meant dinner and drinks with colleagues or clients. Leaving Betty all alone, except for on the weekends. The weekends were for networking, going out to dinner to be seen, being invited to charity functions, Barbecues with Dan's work colleagues and church on Sundays, to which Dan rarely attended. Oh, boy. During this time in Dan and Betty's lives, they had welcomed two more children, their first son in 1976 and their second son in 1979. After their second son was born, Betty underwent a tubal ligation. Pregnancy was very hard on Betty. She was sick almost the entire time. She would hemorrhage constantly, and her varicose veins swelled and throbbed. Plus, over the first 10 years of their marriage, she had been pregnant nine times. Oh, my gosh. Four pregnancies resulted in live births. One baby died two days after birth. And four pregnancies are said to have ended in miscarriage and one possible abortion, according to whichever source you read. Wow. Yeah. She is a wreck. I know. That is really sad. Isn't that sad? Yeah. Yeah, it is really sad. What's a tubal ligation? It's where they cut your tubes, your fallopian tubes. Yeah. So that the egg cannot travel into your uterus. 
Gotcha. Uh-huh. Okay. It just gets absorbed into your body. Gotcha. Okay. Which for a good Catholic girl to get a tubal ligation is a big deal. To use is, contraceptive is, this the same is a as big saying deal. Getting your tubes tied. Yes. Oh, okay. Yes. All right. I didn't, I didn't yes. put those. I didn't mm-hmm. put those two tubes together. Two and two. To, never mind. <laughs> yeah. That wasn't funny. <laughs> that was funny. It made me laugh. Two and two together. Tubes. Yeah. So this was a big deal because Dan didn't want them using contraceptive because of their Catholic faith. Right. But but she, he didn't attend mass. No. Very. It was very. It was. Very, uh, it was very weird. So pick a side. Exactly. Good Lord. Exactly. He was walking the middle. He was on the fence. Yeah. Betty was the ultimate. A lot of splinters. <laughs> Betty was the ultimate mom. In the beginning of their life at Coral Reef, Betty brought in extra money babysitting the neighborhood kids. She loved to be surrounded by the constant noise. That sounds awful to me. <laughs> it really does. Okay, so she's been through all this. She has all these kids, and she's doing babysitting. Yeah. And he's a lawyer. Staying late, having fun, going out. Yep. Right? Yeah. He's living his best life. Why is she babysitting? Well, she liked it, actually. Why doesn't she, he just not have a new car? I bet he had a new car, too. Oh, you were getting way ahead of oh, yourself, I'm sorry. love. All right. No, All right. I'm just picturing him. I know. Right? Like, I know. In order I get it. To, in order to support that image... Like you were saying, he lo- he'd have to have all his perfect suits and this and that and the cars and going out and spending money on drinks. And she's trying I didn't, to- I didn't say that yet, though. No, I'm just guessing. Oh, okay. Is that what- Okay, never mind. I'll stop. That's what I mean. Just, You're getting I'm ahead of yourself. I'm that that's be <laughs> okay. that kind of- I already can picture him. That's what he's going to- Right. Okay, sorry. Right. Betty even had a closet dedicated to crafts and games for the kids. Wow. Mm-hmm. When the girls started school, Betty was always volunteering in the classroom. She coached the children's sporting teams. She drove them back and forth from every extracurricular activity. Every birthday party or holiday event was meticulously planned. And at 3 p.m., she would start to pick up the house and prepare dinner, just in case Dan actually came home for dinner. Wow. She tried very hard to be superwoman, but every year Dan became more and more distant. According to Betty, their marriage was very traditional and old-fashioned. He was the king of the castle, and it was Betty's job to make Dan happy. When Betty would bring up his distance, Dan would tell her that once he hit their financial goals, he would change, and things would be different. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. In 1978, after being with Gray, Carrie, Ames, and Fry for five long years, Daniel T. Broderick III decided it was time to go out on his own and start his own law practice. There it is. Which meant even less time at home, yeah, working 15 hours a day and continuing to socialize. Oh, wait, wait, wait. I mean- Network. Network, Network, right. 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 Late into the evenings and on weekends. Uh Dan was busy building his profession and his name. No doubt about it. Dan was an excellent malpractice attorney. Nice. Yes, he was amazing. Cracks in the Broderick marriage were growing bigger and bigger. Dan and Betty's arguments became epic fights filled with name-calling, bouts of silent treatments, nights spent on the couch, and sometimes objects being flung across the room, such as a glass ketchup bottle in a giant aquarium. Two reasons why you shouldn't have glass ketchup bottles. They don't make those anymore. Or... Aquariums right. in your house. Nothing could <laughs> go right from that. In the early 80s, Dan began winning multi-million dollar settlements, and the Brodericks started upping their game. They could finally afford all the finer things in La Jolla, 
They joined not one, but two country clubs. They also bought a vacation condo at a local resort called Warner Springs Ranch, which I've been there a couple times. Really? <laughs> yes. Yes, they have hot springs there. So, oh, mm-hmm. look at you. I know. Lucky. And we weren't even fancy. Dang. A vacation condo in Colorado, a powerboat. They started collecting imported wines for their collection. And Dan took he and Betty on some five-star vacations to Europe and on a Caribbean cruise. Is she still babysitting to bring in extra money at this point? I don't think so. Okay. Not at this point. At least he finally let her off the hook for that. Right. That was nice of him. They were able to enroll the girls in the best private school, and Betty became very active in the local charity scene. Now, that is what a woman of Betty's new status needs to be a part of. Yes. Mm Mm-hmm. Lunching with the movers and shakers of not only La Jolla, but of San Diego as well. Sure. Betty's social standing was on the rise, and she loved every minute of it. All right. See, now the trade-off, it's starting Mm -hmm. to stall that work. It's starting to pay off. Right. The couple also began indulging in the finer things money had to offer, such as fashion, jewelry, and trinkets. Ooh, I like trinkets. Dan only wearing custom suits. And purchasing a silk top hat and ankle-length cape for formal events. Stop. I swear. Well, who the hell? <laughs> why would he wear a silk top hat? Dan even started referring to himself as Count de Money. <laughs> oh, my God. I just hit my mic. <laughs> oh, oh. He's kind of a dork. Count de Money. Count he was. De money? He was a big old dork. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. All right. <laughs> Betty also enjoyed shopping and would only wear designer labels. Of course. Mm-hmm. Dan was giving Betty $5,000 a month, which is about $13,000 in today's economy, to cover household expenses and the needs of the kids, plus lots and lots and lots of credit cards. Okay. This is the 80s, man. Yeah. Yeah. This is when everybody so the 5, was living on credit. The was also for the credit cards? No. The 5000 was for okay. expenses, yeah, see, like groceries. See, those, eventually, those little pieces of plastic, you got to pay them back. You do. Okay. Mm-hmm. Dan was a one-man operation while he built his business. He did his own research, filed motions and briefs on his own, made his own appointments, used a freelance typist when he could, and used the building's receptionist to screen his calls for the first couple of years. Eventually, Dan hired his own secretary slash receptionist, but he was still doing everything else on his own. Wow. By 1983, Dan and Betty had been married for 14 years, and Dan's income was skyrocketing. He was making an incredible name for himself as a medical malpractice attorney. Most cases he worked on settled out of court because with Dan Broderick as the lawyer, opposing counsel knew that they were more likely going to lose. Could you imagine that? Just people just yeah. going, oh, it's a broad Broderick's doing this case. All right. right. You know what? Let's just, uh, let's see right. if we can settle. So here's where my three degrees of separation comes in right. from cool. this couple is that my mom managed a large law firm uh-huh. in San Diego. She knew about Dan Broderick oh. before well, any it. of this stuff happened. So she and... Oh, she knew of him, She mean. knew of gotcha. him. Yes. Okay. Everyone who was in, who was associated with any form of law in San Diego knew Dan Broderick. Wowzers. And would use his name or give his name out all the time. 
My mom remembers handing out his cards to people. Are you serious? Yes. Yes. Dan oh my was huge in San Diego. Huh. Yes. And so was Betty because they were at every San Diego function. Gotcha. So everybody knew the Broadricks. That's why I feel a little bit connected to this case. Right. Because my mom was connected to this case and my mom talked about it all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I, I imagine. Yeah. I mean, and at her office. Yeah, because he was they such talked a, about it all the time. Almost a household name when it came to lawyers. He was. He a hundred percent he was. Huh. Mm-hmm. One night, Betty told Dan that he needed to hire himself an assistant so he could be home more with she and the kids. Dan knew exactly who he should hire, Linda Colkenna. Of course. By the summer of 1983, Dan was more distant than ever and even turned down a trip with Betty and the family. It was a month-long road trip around the Pacific Northwest. Betty had planned out every detail. Dan had been excited at one point but decided he was too busy with work to go. Betty and the kids had a wonderful time, but Betty only had a handful of conversations conversations with Dan on the phone during their four weeks apart. Wow. Dan was busy. Dan was busy with his new assistant. Yeah. Well, she needed a lot of training. Yes. Because she couldn't even type. He probably had to teach her how to type. He probably had to hold her hands. Yeah. And push push her buttons or Uh, push the buttons on the key keyboard. Okay. All right. We got to hurry. The day after Betty and the kids returned to La Jolla, Dan told Betty that he was unhappy with his life and that Betty was old, fat, ugly, boring, and stupid. Perfect. Betty played it off that Dan was in a mood and was working too hard. Okay, so if I came home, (laughs) you came home from a trip, and I said, Melissa, you're old, fat, ugly, boring, and stupid. Right. You would say, oh my gosh, he's so tired. And he's been working hard. No, I would point out all of your flaws and punch you in the face. Wow. All right. <laughs> well, now I know what to expect. I'll wear a you mask. You better never say I'll that wear, to me. I'll wear a, a boxing mask. You better never say yeah. anything like that to me. <laughs> so, I'm getting mad so, just thinking about see, it. See, that's why I'm I had to, to say it. A that's little why bit. I said it out loud. Because yeah. that, imagine that. <laughs> no. Especially no. after you come back from a little vacation that, uh, you know, that he, Failed to attend. With his family. Right. Yeah. In September of 1983, that same year, Dan announced that he had finally hired an assistant and her name was Linda Colkenna. Like he finally told her after a few months. Well, she didn't know that he had a new cute assistant that's young. Of course he didn't tell her because he knew what would happen. Right. Betty had heard that name before, but she couldn't place it. Then it dawned on her. Linda was that young and attractive woman from the building Dan's office was in. The one he said was beautiful. Mm-hmm. Basically Betty 2.0. Yep. Betty lost it. She told Dan that he had till the end of October to fire Linda and hire someone new or he wasn't allowed in their home anymore. October came and October went. And guess what? Linda was still there. Linda was still working for Dan on the 1st of November. Boom. Betty could not understand why Dan didn't fire Linda, but Dan swore up and down that nothing was going on with he and Linda. No. Betty, how could you say that? Nothing is happening. (laughs) I love you. (laughs) I can just hear it. Oh, my gosh. They were just work colleagues. Yes, that's it. Yeah. 
Betty chose to believe her husband, even though her gut was telling her different. Yeah, and they would so, collaborate, cohabitate, yeah. collaborate on things, um, you yeah. know, for work. Yeah. And so were her friends who were telling Betty that people were seeing Dan and Linda all over town together. Oh, boy. Even during non-work hours. Oh, and Dan had also bought himself a red Corvette during this time. <laughs> You know what? I've been looking at red Corvettes for sale. That's <laughs> Mid- interesting. Midlife crisis, anyone? Yeah. Yeah. On the night of November 7th, Betty's 36th birthday, she was anxiously awaiting the arrival of her husband, Dan. She had cooked a lovely meal. Betty and the kids had gotten all dressed up and were waiting in the dining room. She's dedicated. But Dan never came home. Of course not. The kids and Betty put on a good show and ate Betty's home-cooked meal and celebrated without Dan. After the kids went to bed, Betty gathered every narcotic she could find in the house and went up to their shared master bathroom. Betty swallowed all the pills and then cut her wrists with Dan's razor. When Dan finally came home early the next morning, he found Betty bleeding and asleep on the bathroom floor. Dan bandaged her up and put her to bed. The next morning, Dan swore up and down that he was working on a case and that he was not with Linda Kolkenna. But just two weeks later, on November 22nd, Dan's 39th birthday, Betty bought two dozen long-stem red roses and a nice bottle of wine, got all dressed up, and drove over to Dan's office to surprise him and take him to lunch for his birthday celebration. Betty walked in and asked the receptionist where Dan was. She told her that he had left for a briefing but should be back later. Betty decided to wait in Dan's office. As she opened his door... She was immediately hit with the signs of a birthday party that she had not been invited to, and it looked as though it had just been a celebration for two. Two glasses of half-drank champagne, two plates with remnants of chocolate cake, and there were balloons and streamers. As Betty took in the scene, she happened to look over at Linda's office and saw a large picture of Dan in his early 20s in a picture frame hung on Linda's office wall. Oh, my gosh. Betty turned around and went home. The thing I wanted to bring up is that when Betty walked into Dan's office, the receptionist had no idea who she was. Is this Linda? No. This is Betty. No, no, I'm thinking the the receptionist. No, it was was a receptionist that he had hired before. Yeah, I said he had hired a a secretary slash slash receptionist. Okay, all right. right. So, so he this woman never brought up his wife no. to anyone. And Betty never went to his office. Isn't that odd? Yeah, she never Seems they never like did lunch during the day. She never would just pop by and say hi or even go in to maybe help him with things. I mean, Betty was a smart yeah. girl. She could have done Linda's job. But right. but in Betty's mind, she was supposed to be home. Right. She was supposed to be the perfect wife. And the perfect mother and be there for wouldn't her children. She, okay. It wouldn't you let's say I was him. Right. Say I'm Dan and I'm Dan. Right. Right. Um, wouldn't you swing by every once in a while with all the kids? Oh, for sure. And be like, Hey kids, go say hi to dad. He's working hard, but we just want to come by and say hi and yeah. did something and Or I mean, they had money enough. They had money. I'd put the kids in preschool. Yeah. And like go to your office and help you. Yeah. Or go to your office and hang out. But I like you. I don't think these two liked each other. But she kept like pretending. Yeah. It was she all about kept, appearances. Like, dressing up and doing dinner and don't and we know keep... people like this? 
Probably. Don't we know people that their main focus of their marriage is to keep up appearances? I guess so. I mean, imagine if we had social media back Not in this day. Not to this day. extent. This you is know, over the top, but yeah. If we had social media back in the day, I bet Betty would have been an influencer. Probably. Yeah, for sure. But then all the pictures on Facebook would have come out. She would have caught him sooner. True, because Linda would have had a social Someone media Someone would account. have seen something and right, tagged them in right. a picture when he was supposed so to he have been at the office. Yeah, you know. so he couldn't have gaslit Betty. Right. Right. Betty didn't just go home and eat a pint of ice cream and go to bed. Nope. Betty took every piece of clothing Dan had, except for that damn top hat and cape, and threw them into a pile in the backyard. She then poured lighter fluid all over and lit that pile of clothes on fire. Perfect. So she knew that it was very important. His clothing was yes. very important to him. Yes. She knew that's how she could get him. Gotcha. Betty watched tens of thousands of dollars go up in flames. Okay. After the fire went out, she then dumped brown paint all over the ashes <laughs> and did all of this in front of the kids who were now almost 14, almost 13, 7, and 4. Oh, jeez. Yeah. When Dan finally arrived home, he was surprisingly calm, once again telling Betty that nothing was going on with Linda and that Betty was imagining things. He had just had a late meeting. That's all that happened. That was the reason. That was it. He just had a late meeting. Yeah, I had a late meeting. Yeah. Betty once again choosing to believe her husband. Yeah, but clearly <laughs> she has snapped. She has. She burnt all she of snapped. his custom-made clothes. Right. Oh, my gosh. 1984 seemed to be a quieter year for the Broadricks. Oh, good. It okay. was the year that Betty tried to reinvent herself, making her more attractive to Dan. Betty had her forehead and eyes lifted. Loose skin removed from her abdomen, fixed her overbite, lost weight, added wrinkle treatments to her daily skin care regimen, and grew her hair long. Betty also quit her regular social engagements to become Dan's beck and call girl. Nice. Mm-hmm. But I know why 1984 was so quiet. Dan and Linda had broken up that year and were just platonic work colleagues. Linda even having a serious boyfriend during this time. Linda had been pressuring Dan to leave Betty and to just be with her, but he couldn't bring himself to do it. Dan was a good Catholic boy and couldn't break his wedding vows. Oh, yeah. He was a, great, yeah, no, he was a good, clearly a good right. Catholic boy. Getting divorced was worse than having an uh, affair. <laughs> I, don't get, I don't get it. I know. Okay. So Dan ended the affair. Towards the end of 1984, the Brodericks had begun remodeling their home on Coral Reef, but it was quickly discovered that there was a giant crack in the foundation and the family needed to move out for a while. Oh, boy. Dan rented a home for the family near the beach, in La Jolla Shores to be exact, and the family absolutely loved it. The kids loved being in walking distance of the beach, and Betty loved being so close to the village where she could shop and lunch with girlfriends. It gave the Brodericks the push they needed to start looking at homes for sale in much nicer areas and with much larger price tags. Yep. But Dan and Betty were having a hard time agreeing on areas and houses. Mm-hmm. In February of 1985, 40-year-old Dan arrived home one evening and announced he was moving back into Coral Reef by himself. He needed space and time alone to think about their marriage and his life. 
but never saying that he wanted a divorce. So, okay. Okay. <laughs> Dan left. What about all the kids? Okay. Dan right. left, and it was up to Betty to tell the children that he was no longer living there anymore. Oh, my gosh. Wouldn't you... Wouldn't you make him tell them? Say, you know what? You tell them that. Yeah. Have a, have a sit down. Nope. He left. Oh, mm-hmm. my gosh. Betty kept telling family, friends, and frankly, anyone that would listen that Dan was going through a midlife crisis and would be home soon, using his red Corvette as an example. In my opinion, I think that Dan and Linda had gotten back together at this time and that Linda had given him an ultimatum. Her or me. And he chose her. Linda. Wow. Yeah. That's a, yeah, that makes sense. Construction was close to being done at the Coral Reef house, but there wasn't any furniture and or working appliances. So Betty had it in her head that Dan would come back after a few days and they would work out their issues. But he never did. I'm pretty sure he was shacking up with Linda most of the time because he had bought Linda a condo. Oh, yeah. That's where I would Mm go. Like, let's see, do I want to go home with my crazy wife and all the kids and noise or I want to with the young hot thing in the condo. The young hot thing for sure. Yeah, for sure. Sometimes he and Betty would talk on the phone but Dan never told Betty he wanted a divorce. He never f- told her. Like, this is a separation that's going to eventually lead to divorce. He kept telling her, I just need my space. Right. I just need to be alone to think about things. No wonder kids are all screwed up. Right. Sometimes Dan would pop over late at night to the beach house, especially when he was drinking, and he and Betty would have some adult aerobics. What? Dan would then get up, put back on his clothes, and leave. I wonder if he left her money on the counter, too. Probably. Mm-hmm. I would. The children were now... So she, oh. would, she, so she was okay with that. She was his wife. But... That was her duty. But if I said, I don't want to be with you right now, and then I just show up kind of drinking. Right. Having been drinking. You'd be like, oh, honey, let's um, let's go do something. No, definitely not. Wouldn't you be like pissed off? Yeah. Heck yeah. Okay. But that's just me. All right. You know, I'm not that great of a wife. So, yeah. you know, Betty, good, Betty's got is, it on me. It sounds like she's a good wife. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> The children were now 15, 14, 9, and 6. Oh, jeez. I know. I know. Betty tried. Oh, did Betty try. When she talked to Dan over the phone, she was sweet as pie. Mm-hmm. She never complained or nagged at him about when he was coming home or when he was seeing his children. But a little fire started to grow in the pit of Betty's stomach. As the weeks continued and Dan kept saying he still needed his space, that fire would grow. Especially when one of her friends would tell her that she saw Dan and Linda out and about in his red Corvette. Why was Betty stuck at home with the children? Why was she running them all over town to their extracurricular activities? Why was she the only parent at conferences? Why did Dan get to have his cake and eat it too? That fire in the pit of Betty's stomach kept growing and growing, getting hotter and hotter. Betty was about to explode. Well, why did she let him get away with that? Because she... But why not just say... She just thought uh, he was going to come back. You know, you're going to have to do something with the kids. I'm not doing everything. Okay, well, let me finish. Okay. Okay. The weekend before the Broderick's 16th anniversary was Easter weekend. Betty had taken the kids to their condo at Warner's Ranch. 
Betty and the kids loved it there. They could relax, go horseback riding, swim in the pools, and go hiking as a family. When Betty and the kids arrived home to the house that's on the beach, they opened the door to a rat infestation. Oh, fun. Rats were everywhere. There was poop everywhere. Even the hems of Betty's $1,000 floor-length gowns were chewed on and ruined. Betty immediately called Dan at his office and hysterically told him what was happening. Dan's response, good luck. Oh, Dan oh e- <laughs> she should have shot him right then. Dan even testified during their divorce proceedings that he did not like Betty's tone during that particular phone call and that she had 13 credit cards, plenty of cash, and plenty of resources to go and live in any hotel in this country. Okay. That's why he didn't go and help her. Right. Betty and the children set out rat traps and called an exterminator that couldn't fit them in till the next day. That fire in the pit of Betty's stomach just got a little bigger. I bet it did. Mm-hmm. Four days later was Dan and Betty's 16th anniversary, and Dan had promised to take Betty out to a fancy dinner to celebrate. But see, this is what he's but what doing. But what about doing the rat this. thing? Oh, well, that's over now. They got the rat thing fixed. Oh, okay. I mean, right. she hired an exterminator who took care of the rats. Gotcha. All but right. But I use that as an example of that, like, he but had already checked out. she wouldn't still be upset? She, but she, this is what she did. Oh, my gosh. He would do things like this, and she would make excuses for it, and then continue trying to be this perfect wife. Okay. All right. Right. But I use that as an example that... Dan was already checked out. Oh, clearly. Yeah. Yeah. Already checked out. Like he wanted nothing more to do with Betty, which in turn, he didn't want anything more to do with the children at that point. Right. Mm-hmm. That's what to me is amazing. I know. I mean, if I were the kids, I would have said, all right, all my brothers and sisters be like, all right, we're getting together. We're killing dad because he's a piece of <laughs> killing crap. dad. They were little. I know. But OK, so Dan had promised to take Betty out to a fancy dinner to celebrate. Okay. But I'm, this is what I'm getting at. This is what he How did. How could you enjoy that, though, at this point? I don't know. Like, wouldn't you he just... Would, he kept her dangling right. on a line. Okay. All right. With all these promises. But what? She okay. wanted to believe. She wanted to believe that she, they were going to be okay. And he knew it. Yeah. Betty spent the entire day getting ready. She wanted to look perfect for Dan. Oh my even God. wearing his favorite color blue okay dan called an hour before he was supposed to pick up betty and told her he couldn't make it (laughs) (laughs) he had to sucker he had to go to a business dinner instead oh man all right okay how could dan continue to do this to her she did everything for he and the children for the last 16 years dan was acting like he was a single bachelor back in college this is this is going on in betty's brain right Betty decided to attend her father's 75th birthday party at the beginning of May. She bought one round-trip ticket to New York. But who could she get to watch the kids? One night, the girls were fighting, and that fire in Betty's stomach erupted. Betty told her oldest daughter to pack her things. She was going to live with her dad at Coral Reef. Betty drove her over in in her big old Suburban and dropped the 15-year-old off at the front door. When Dan arrived an hour later, he found his oldest daughter curled in a ball and crying on his front step. 
Over the next few days, Betty dropped off each one of her children at Dan's doorstep. Obviously, she was doing this to prove to Dan how hard it was to be a single parent and that maybe he would start to appreciate her more and want her back. Right. This is what is going on in Betty's dysfunctional thinking. Sure, sure. No, I I can see that. This is what Betty told a court-appointed therapist about that specific situation. She says, I wanted to show that son of a bee that there was more to effing than having fun. Let him see what it was like to try raising four children. But you know what that effort did? He just kept them. (laughs) Dropping the children off at Dan's house was the worst mistake Betty could have possibly made. Betty's strategic plan backfired. She just made herself out to look like a neglectful mother. And Dan just replaced her with babysitters and a housekeeper. There you go. Mind you, Dan still has not admitted to the affair with Linda, nor told Betty that he wanted a divorce. Betty still thinks he is in the throes of a midlife crisis and that they will someday get back together and be a family. He was basically gaslighting her. Yep. Mm-hmm. The lease was up on the rental that June, and Betty had all their furniture moved back into Coral Reef, but Dan was still not ready for Betty to move back in. So... Betty found a house for sale in the same area as the rental. It was located on one of La Jolla's most attractive streets. Okay. It was right across from the beach. Dan agreed to the purchase of the large home and put down the $140,000 deposit, which is $346,000 today. Okay. The house was bought for $650,000, which is about $1.6 million in today's market. Gotcha. Okay. Mm -hmm. But as Betty put it, even though it was a teardown house eventually, it was worth the price because of the location. Sure. Okay. At the end of June, Betty moved into the house all by herself. Dan was refusing to give her back the kids. She didn't even have furniture because she had sent everything back to Coral Reef. So Dan had all the furniture because she thought that once her lease was up in June, she was going to move back to Coral Reef. Right. But when he said, you know, I still need time, she was like, okay, well, let's buy this house that we're eventually going to tear down and make into our dream home. Right. So then she's like, okay, I'm just going to go live there. Yeah. So she didn't even have any furniture. So she ended up sleeping on the floor that entire summer. Wouldn't she go get some furniture delivered? I mean, something. Right. But I think in her Not on head. Floor? Yeah. I mean, she probably had a mattress, I guess. I don't know. I don't know. Really she floor, said but... she's sleeping on the floor. Okay. Well, that's yeah. dramatic. But... Right. And if anything, we all know Betty is dramatic. Yeah. Right. At least get a waterbed. Sorry, it was the 80s. I'm just making a joke. <laughs> oh, the waterbed. Right. Right. Nothing else, just a waterbed. Yeah. So she was not invited to move back to Coral Reef. No. So instead, she lived at this you know, quote unquote, tear down house. And Dan put her on a monthly income of $9,036, which is equivalent to $22,000 today. So she was getting a monthly income of $22,000 in today's market. All right. Uh Uh-huh. That was to take care of the mortgage and the insurance and all of her expenses and no more credit cards for Mrs. Broderick. But don't worry about little old Betty. She had a strapping young man, six years her junior, keeping her warm at night. What? Enter Brad Wright. 
You know what, though? At this point, I think she deserves it, in my opinion. Yeah. Because, I mean, he obviously had her, his, sorry, he had his thing on the side. Right. So why of. can't she? So Brad was a local La Jolla man whose mother was very wealthy. Perfect. Betty and Brad enjoyed each other's company. Betty cooked for him, and he did the quote-unquote boy jobs around the house. Ah, and they called? even traveled together. Okay, all right. <laughs> I think Betty really enjoyed the summer of 1985. I mm-hmm. bet she did. But alas, the fun must end. Ah, uh, it always does. And on September 23rd, 1985, after 16 years of marriage, 40-year-old Daniel T. Broderick III finally filed for divorce from 37-year-old Elizabeth Ann Broderick. Yep. Mm-hmm. And that is where I'm going to end part one. <laughs> Gotcha. Okay. Yep. So, any questions, Daniel dear? Um Okay, so what I what I also wanted to say is oh, before okay. he filed for divorce, he never mentioned the word divorce. So even though he had a girlfriend and Betty had a boyfriend, Betty just thought that this was just a phase and they would get so back she, together. You think she was so naive that yes. she truly did not th- See this coming. Yes. Or she didn't want to see it coming, so she put up blinders. She wanted to believe it couldn't happen. Yes. She blocked that from her brain. Absolutely. Hmm. Fascinating. So I'm going to end it here. Now, Daniel doesn't have time to listen to part two. So part two will not come out the day after this one comes out. Okay. We're going to. It's It's all my fault. No, it's okay. I need, people need to process this, marinate in it for a little bit, and then we'll send it out probably on the regularly scheduled Tuesday. So I apologize, but. It'll be worth the wait. It'll be worth it. So come back for part two as I dive into the nastiest divorce in San Diego County's history, a preventable double murder, and a drama-filled courtroom battle that not only happened once, but happened twice. There it is. Yep. Be careful. (laughs) Because marriage is a life sentence. Bye. Bye. Bye.